This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 20. We're starting in verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Assos, we took him on board and went to Medellin. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The word of the Lord. So my dad continues to do really well. Um, and uh, really, I love having him around. We've always gotten along, and I enjoy spending time with him. And um, um, actually, I'm able now to pick his brain a little bit. For as long as I can remember growing up as a kid, we were the uh, family with the really nice lawn. So he was the guy who would meticulously care for his lawn. I remember him building ponds and fountains, and he had this garden that was the envy of everybody. And my dad's really, really good at kind of landscaping and all of that. And uh, though I do enjoy it, I don't have his knowledge. And so I've taken advantage of it. And um, in fact, when I was up mowing this past week, my dad's pretty much stayed in his room. But as soon as he heard the mower going, uh, he comes toddling out of the house and comes finding me with the mower, and, uh, um, which is awesome. And then he kind of watched me mow. I guess to be sure I was doing it right. And I don't care how old you are. When your daddy's watching you mow, you're 12 years old. Okay, that's what it's like. But uh, anyway, uh, I was able to pick my dad's brain a little bit. There's some bushes that I don't know, don't know quite how to trim right and how we should trim them. And he kind of showed me all of that and some trickier parts of the lawn. And he was sure to point out some things that I didn't quite, you know, get exactly perfect, and uh, which is great. And, and, and all in all, um, it's, it's good to have him around, like to have that expertise in areas that I just, I'm, I'm a little weak in. Um, He's a great example that way. And I'll say this even more. He's, he's a better example of being a loving father. He has always been a loving father. And, and even though I may not have nailed everything about lawn care, he was sure to say to me, good job, son. I'm proud of you. You did great on that lawn. So 
Thanks, Dad. And I don't care how old you are, when your daddy says that you did a good job on the lawn, you feel pretty incredible about it. We need that. We need examples to follow. We need people to look at them. It's one thing to tell me how to do something. It's something completely different to actually show me how to do something. And the more expertise you have in that area, man, the more I'm going to listen. So here we have Paul. And what we have here now in the book of Acts is significant change in Paul's ministry. He's heading to Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, he's going to be arrested. He's going to claim Roman citizenship. He's going to end up being shipped off to Rome. And we're going to follow him on that journey shortly to see all the things that occur to Paul. And so Paul knows because of what the Spirit's telling him that he's not going to see the people he's been ministering to again. And so because of his haste, he's going around Ephesus, but he just can't help it. He needs to invest again in these Ephesian elders. So at Miletus, he calls for them, and they gather him, and he teaches them one last time. He's investing in them, and what he's doing is he's saying, look, I have lived as a gospel minister among you. And Paul is really saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And as we read this this morning and we take in the fact that here is a minister of the gospel telling us how to be a minister of the gospel, we can look at that and we can learn because really all of us are ministers of the gospel. And it's primarily for elders, I get that. There's a lot the elders are going to take from this. But all of us, lottie dotty. By the way, I don't think I ever told the story where that came about. My drill sergeant used to say that in the army all the time. That's where that came about. It's a drill sergeant thing. But anyway, we're all gospel. We're all part of gospel ministry. In fact, let me just give a quick definition of what I would call gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is any work that furthers the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. Any work that furthers the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, that includes what we're doing today, preaching. And that includes those who are serving in children's ministry. That includes those who are serving in youth ministry as they talk about the gospel. It includes servers. It includes uh, greeters. It includes people who are out in the parking lot, parking all of that to pave the way for further gospel ministry. And that's all true. But I don't want you just to check those boxes and feel like you're done just because you've done something on a Sunday morning. Gospel ministry is a lifestyle. Would you say that with me? Gospel ministry is a lifestyle. And it is my passion. It's what I've been praying for, what I'll continue to pray for, is that we as a church really adopt that missional style living, that as you leave here, you'll understand. Say it one more time. Gospel ministry is a lifestyle, and we'll do that together. And with that being said, I want to show you four characteristics from the Apostle Paul of effective gospel ministry. Four characteristics. Here's number one, humility. Humility. Let's go back here to verse number 17, and we see he sent for the elders. Verse number 18, he gathered them there, and he begins to speak. You yourselves know, he says, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Verse number 19, now serving the Lord with all humility. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Kind of rings a little weird, doesn't it? For Paul to say, I served with all humility. It doesn't sound very humble. Well, a couple of things to point out about that. First of all, acknowledge this is Luke 
summarizing what Paul said, right? So this is Luke, who was probably there, probably present uh, at this portion of the book. He's using first uh, pronouns, first-person pronouns. So he was there, and so this is uh, Luke recording it, and uh, Paul may not have said it quite that way, but Luke felt that way about Paul, and that's why Luke said that. More importantly, I'll point out, as Luke was writing, the Holy Spirit was inspiring Luke to write. So the reality is this is true about Paul. He served with incredible humility, amazing humility. And it is the way that gospel servants should serve, with humility. And I want to say to you that I don't know that we get humility very much in 2022. You know, we'll hear a guy who will say something like, man, I'm nothing. I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid and I can't do anything. And we'll walk away and say, man, that guy's humble. Really, though? C.S. Lewis has a really good quote. You've probably heard this quote. It's kind of misquoted a little bit, so I want to give you the quote in a little bit longer version. This is from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, who said this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be some sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap, who took in real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Self-love and self-loathing are two sides of the same coin. Self-focus. And the idea of humility is a selflessness. That's exactly what we see in the Apostle Paul, a selflessness that is evidenced in a specific way. Look back at verse number 19 again. What's the first word we read there? Serving, serving. How do you know that Paul was so humble? Well, he went about serving. Humility is not demonstrated by what we say. Listen, humility is demonstrated in action. It's demonstrated in action. And Paul lived with them for three years, these Ephesian elders. And so what Paul is saying has been backed up by a lifestyle. He served as a tent maker to provide money for himself and for anybody else who was ministering with them. And he served them and gave of himself. And they saw that in his life. It was demonstrated in action that action was service. Can I take a minute and talk up my staff for a second? staff here at Redemption Bible Church, we serve with some pretty awesome people. It's been awesome to add uh, Linnea to that. She's fit right in. But there's so much that happens around this facility and, of course, over in the offices that none of you see that uh, I get to see because I'm there with them. And I get to see them doing things like cleaning bathrooms and doing things like sweeping floors and doing menial tasks just because they love the fact that they can serve, and not only doing it, but doing it with absolute joy and encouragement as they do. And for all of them, Adam, Drew, Linnea, Scott, servants of God who just serve with humility, I'm so encouraged by that. And something I've been saying recently, but I want to say it again, in this era when it's really hard to trust the leadership of churches, and I understand why. How do you know? How do you know you can trust them? Well, watch them serve. 
I've said it often, truth and time go hand to hand. There is no better indication of a man's integrity than time. Paul was with them for three years, and they saw it in his life. And you will see it come to the surface. What's really in the heart will come to the surface. And if you had pastors who were like, well, I'm not going to do that. I preach the word. I'm not going to fill in the blank. That's not a servant's heart. Now, we should want to free them up, right, to the preaching and teaching of the word of God, but a humility that's there. What have you do a little self-evaluation this morning? Let me ask you this. What evidence can you see in your own life regarding your humility? How do you know if you're humble or not? Well, what's evident in you? Are you serving? Where are you serving? Are you serving with joy or is there a grumbling heart about your service? Do you get upset when other people don't acknowledge your service? What might they say about your humility? Paul was an example in humility. I also want you to see this. Paul was an example in compassion. Paul was an example in compassion. Take a look at then the latter part of verse number 19 where he says this, serving the Lord with all humility. Now watch this. And with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. It's really interesting how it's worded. To understand it properly, of course, we need to look carefully at that wording. So Paul is saying, I served with tears. Well, Tears for what? What was he crying about? What brought him to tears? Was it the fact that he was suffering? Was it the trials that he was in? Is that what brought Paul to tears? And perhaps it's not outside of the realm of possibility that some of those things were legitimately hard and brought him to tears. But I think when you consider all of Scripture, you have to consider this, where Paul says in Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, okay, maybe there were some tears there, but mostly Paul got to the point of rejoicing in suffering. So I don't think it was the fact that he was suffering that brought him to tears, I think there was something else. And look at how it's worded in the text. Verse number 19 again. He was with tears and with trials that happened to me, look at this, through the plots of the Jews. The main enemy Paul faced in his ministry were his brethren. The Jews. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And Paul had given his life to helping and teaching Jewish people. And even now, he was giving his heart and his life. Every place he would go, he would go to the synagogues first. And how did the Jews receive him? They wanted to kill him. And Paul had a massive heart for Jewish people. And we know that from Romans chapter 9. Paul said, uh, Paul said this in verse number three. Get this, man. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Wow. Paul had a, listen now, Paul had a mission-level compassion. He had a mission level compassion. What it means by that is that Paul lived his life, as I've been praying about and, and talking to you about, like gospel ministry is a lifestyle. 
And everywhere Paul went, he saw with eyes, and he saw with the eyes of Christ. And he had a passion for people. It's not true of every church in America. I was watching this video this past week of a group called The Untamed Truth. I don't know if you heard about them or not, but this video specifically was, they had a little you know, tent set up at the campus of UNF. I think we have a picture of it, a little campus of UNF. So that is the actual, see in the corner of their little tent they have set up. And they have these signs and they have megaphones. And uh, one clip I watched, the guy was saying, hypocrites, you're all hypocrites. And talking to one lady, okay, all right, fine. Go back to the fires of hell. That's where you belong. That's what Jesus would do. Would you ever do that? How about if it was online? As, as I look at the way Christianity is handling the world today, what I see is a whole lot more of that kind of thing happening, but in comments on posts. We need to have a greater compassion. Do, do the believers or the unbelievers that are outside, do they more irritate you or prick your heart? I mean, why, what's the benefit of calling people names and treating people harshly? What comes of that? What's dri- Something's driving that. And whatever's driving that is not a mission-level compassion for the souls of people. It's my strong contention that all of us, me included, probably me especially, need to see with more missional eyes and need to see those around us with the eyes of Christ. I'll never forget a time when we went to Chicago. I probably told you this story before, but when the kids were younger, we gave them each a special day. And for Landon's special day, he loved trains and he loved Legos. And so he was probably six, seven years old. And we got in a train, took a train from South Bend all the way to Chicago. And then we went to the the, uh, noodles. You know, he got some mac and cheese, some really good mac and cheese. And then we went to the Lego store, let him pick out. And I'm telling you, man, it was an awesome day, fun for him. But I remember walking the streets of Chicago seeing all the people and it dawning on me, every person that I'm seeing right now will stand before Jesus Christ. Every one of them will, every single one. It's either going to be heaven or hell. And when you look with those eyes, it's like, whoa. I mean, what do you do? I would stand up and start preaching the gospel if it would help right now, but there are people who would, I mean, around me here in Fort Wayne, it's easy when you're out there. But when you're out here and you're just doing your thing and you're going to the places you always go and seeing the people you always see, it's easy to have different eyes. And my prayer is to have the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, lift up your eyes from John chapter 4. He said this, do you, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. And I want to challenge us to have eyes of compassion When you look at the world around you, what do you see? Do you tend to be more frustrated or heartbroken about the state of lost sinners around you? Paul had a compassion that is envious and one that 
ministers of the gospel should have. And more than that, we also see this. So we see humility, we see compassion, we also see instruction happening. And I want you to look at this in verse number 20. Verse number 20 says this, how I did not, I love how he puts this, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul taught the people. He taught them. I want to consider how Paul taught, and I want you to see the words that are used here, several words that are used. He uses the word declaring, I declare to you, for, or that string back from declaring to you. In the same verse, verse 20, uses the word teaching and teaching you. In verse number 21, testifying, he testified to them. In fact, if you let you guys, your eyes fall all the way to verse 31, we're going to get to this next week, the latter half of Paul's sermon in here, but look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Now, each of those are different Greek words, teaching, testifying, admonishing, and they all have their own nuanced meaning. But I also want to consider this, not just how Paul taught. I want to show you what he taught. Look at verse 21, where he says this. He taught uh, repentance toward God. He also taught there faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's rise, fall down to verse number 24, where he says this, uh, but I do not count my life as value or precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify, there's that word again, to what? To the gospel of the grace of God. So he taught repentance towards God, taught the gospel of the grace of God. Look at verse number 27, really interesting. Therefore, I did not shrink, there's that same phrase, from declaring to you, here it is, the whole counsel of God. So what did Paul teach? Well, he taught repentance. He taught the gospel. He taught the whole counsel of God. And then where did he teach it? Well, at verse number 20, publicly. Also verse 20, house to house. He says in verse number 31, I did not uh, admonish you night and day with tears. You can look at all that and we can dive into each of the words and we can do, I think the whole point that Paul is trying to make is, man, I just taught every chance I had. Every opportunity I got, I wanted to tell you about Jesus and the gospel, and I wanted to teach all of what God's word has to say. It's interesting because the Great Commission says this, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching and admonishing everyone. And, uh, and he says, um, Let's go to it. I'm not, my memory is, is uh, not what it, it should be in the moment. So go to Matthew chapter 28 for a second. It's only the Great Commission. I've only, you know, quoted it 5,000 times. But you try preaching for a living and doing it. <laughs> Verse 18 says this, And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Here it is. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's huge. And Paul taught that way. And, and Paul was passionate about teaching the gospel and the entirety of the word of God. And he did it everywhere. And he did it all the time. Paul had a lifestyle of discipleship. Now, now, the primary application of this, this is Paul teaching elders 
So the primary application is that we elders at Redemption need to be fired up and sold out on gospel ministry, teaching the gospel, and we need to be fired up about preaching the whole counsel of God. And I think that when you look at all the epistles, there's no way you come to any other conclusion that what we as elders should be doing is preaching the word. In fact, he says that very thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, going into the first part of 4, he says, preach the word. And that means the whole council. That means even stuff that unbelievers don't like to hear. That means all of it. It's why we're redemption Bible church, because of that very reason. And we want to be a church that's preaching the word. But just pastors, look at Colossians 3.16. I got it on the screen for you, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Church, look at the words. Teaching and admonishing, those are the same words he used to describe his ministry, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with giving in your hearts to God. So yeah, the pastor should be teaching, but who else should be teaching? Point to who else should be teaching. Point to your neighbor, them as well. In fact, check this out. Titus 2, verse number three. Older women... Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women teaching younger women. How about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Men teaching men. This is what it should be. We have in our church um, the Kittners. Kittners, you guys celebrated 49 years? 49 years of marriage uh, this past. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for Dory. Especially for Dory. Yes, Dory. Good job. Uh, that means that uh, when bell bottoms were popular, that's when they got married. Okay. When mutton chops were in, that's when they were married. So uh, almost 50 years of marriage. And we have several couples in our church that got married in June. Can I just say to, to them, and we all know this, it's awesome, but there's a whole lot of living yet to come. Living that Irvin Dory have done. And for them to lovingly invest in that younger, to help teach. And this is God's model for a church. And we're to be teaching and admonishing. Now we do that in small group ministry. I love that. Um, imagine, you know, a diverse small group we have, and they tend to, to migrate to age groups. They just tend to do that, no matter what we try to do, which is, I get that. But somewhere in your life, just start reaching out, and, and I'm telling you, older people, the younger people want your help. And I'm telling you, younger people, they know, trust them, and hear, and learn from one another. We should be instructing each other. Instruction should be happening how are you doing with that? Who are you investing in? Discipleship is 
the mission of the church, can I get a witness? So who are you discipling? Who are you pouring into? And I trust there's someone in your life. Four words, we have three of them so far. Humility, compassion, instruction. And now the last one here, take a look at this. Determination, determination. And I want you to see this in verse number 22. This is Paul now. Look at what he says. And now, and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained, this is so interesting, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay, hold, hold on a second. Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Look at the text. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He is constrained by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit told him, go to Jerusalem. And that's not all the Spirit said to him. The Spirit also said what? Look at the next verse. Except, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city imprisonment and afflictions wait me. Yeah, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. And you're going to be thrown in prison. And you're going to have some afflictions. Wouldn't you be like, um, maybe this isn't God's will then? <laughs> Except it is, because the Spirit said it, so you know it is. And we just don't, we just don't do this well. Not in 2022. Like Adam pointed out last week, man, we love our convenience. We love the, I'm going to knock on the fridge and see the light. Or, you know, we're so lazy, we don't even want to get up and turn the lights on anymore. Hey, Siri. Hey, Alexa. Turn the lights on. And while you're up, bring me some chips. I mean, isn't that what we're like? It is. We don't like hard, man. We don't like hard. But I want to say to you, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. And some of the most important lessons in your life, you learn them through trials. Um, they do this thing in the army. It's uh, the gas chamber. And what they'll do is they'll bring you into the gas chamber and uh, the, have you, you have a whole week of training on your gas mask. And so you train it, you learn how to clean it, you do all these things for your gas mask, and you learn how to take it off and put it on. Like, well, gas, 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 and you got to take it out, put it on, psh, have it sealed in so much time, and then have to put it back in just the right way so you can get it out again. All this training you do. At the end of all that, what they do is they have you don it, get it all on, and they take you into a gas chamber. You're staying in the gas chamber for a while, and then they say, okay, take off your gas masks. And so you, you, you're like, you're fine. It's great in here. It's a little smoky, but it's not so bad. Until you take that gas mask off, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. And then you have to go to the drill sergeant. You got to say your last name and the last four of your serial. So I'd be like, Private Hart, one, two, three, four, which, by the way, is not the last four of my social security number, as if I would give that to you. Uh, but, you know, so that's, and, and so what you do, though, that's hard. And you're, you're the, Gas hits your eyes and your nose and anything that has, you know, all the, everything's just draining and it's horrible. And, but you learn, okay, that thing really works. And it's hard, but it's good. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. And some of the trials you experience in life, you know, some of the most important things are only learned through trial. And do that enough, you gain a deep trust in the Lord. And that's vital for what comes next. Take a look at Paul's passion in the text. 
verse number 25 again, though. No, I'm sorry, verse number 24. He says this. But, okay, so afflictions and imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, now check this. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I, I, I just want to live for one thing, just for one thing, to tell people about the gospel. That's all. That's it. That's the most precious thing in my life. There is a dedication And, and we need to come to that. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you, watch this, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Have you done that? Growing up, I was taught the two crosses. Cross number one is the cross of salvation. Cross number two is the cross of dedication. And they kind of taught it like it was a one-time decision. I don't know that I agree so much with that. I think that as you learn the depths of the gospel in your own life, that, that there is multiple times you have to do this. But I'm just wondering, as you evaluate your life, can you say that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain? Like, be honest with me about this. Be honest with your own heart about this. And I think that we don't say that our life isn't precious to us. And that's why it's, it's hard to turn it over, because it is precious to us. You, know, you don't loan things you love, or it's hard to loan things you love. Like, like, like um, I just don't give anybody my MacBook, okay? A, it was really expensive, all right? And, 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 it's, and I need it every day for work. So someone's like, hey, can I borrow your computer? I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. That or food, you know, like I just, <laughs> on the way up, I was asking Courtney, what am I, like, what am I hesitant to loan? Uh, your food? Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. Stay away from my chicken, all right? Um, you know, it's like, get your own fries, all right? Don't say at the counter, you don't want fries, and then you eat my fries at the table. Get your own fries. <laughs> Write that down. That's like gold for you. That's, that's the Holy Spirit talking to some of you women right now. Tell you straight up. I would give my MacBook to Adam because I trust him. I'd give it to Drew. I trust him. Linnea. We're getting there. <laughs> Just kidding, Linnea. Scott, for sure. Maybe we don't want to hand our life over to the Lord because we don't trust him. Is it going to go the way I want it to go? Are my dreams going to come out the way I hope they do? By the way, worship team, you guys can come on up. I think, I think because something has happened along the way, and I know it's easy to doubt. It is. I mean, I, I'm amazed still at how long I've lived and how a check engine light will still make me anxious. Hasn't God proven he's got me yet? So I want to share a little bit about Jesus this morning as we end the service. 
Because, listen, you're not going to walk away from here and say, I want to be a better gospel minister, so I, I'm going to be more humble. Dang it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be more humble, and I'm going to be more compassionate, and I'm going to be better at teaching, and I'm going to be, you know what, more dedicated. Like, you're not going to walk away white-knuckling this, so where does it come from? I believe very, very strongly it comes from looking at Jesus, because church, Jesus was humble. The passage Philippians 2 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was humble for you. And you're saved and forgiven because of his humility. Look at that. Consider that. Live tomorrow in the joy of forgiveness and realize it was only because he humbled himself. He was compassionate. Scripture says this, Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And not just for them. He looked at you. He had compassion for you, and he forgave you of your sins. Jesus taught, here's Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and there he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth and taught them. And he sent the Holy Spirit to teach us, and you have learned. And then there was this, he was determined. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And he did all of that so you can be forgiven of your sins. Listen, the action taken from this sermon is not be more humble, be more compassionate, be more determined, be whatever. No, the action is to look to Jesus, to consider Jesus. And as you live close and near to him, you're going to find yourself growing in humility and compassion and willing to teach, and your determination will only grow as you stare at Jesus. So we're going to end the service singing about our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the incredible gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his example to us. And Paul was just following Jesus, all he was doing. Let us see Christ now and put our hope in Christ and him alone. In his name we pray, amen.